In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions, be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote. From accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht git blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcasts and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Hello and welcome to episode 89 of Scottish Blethers. I'm Liz Lister. And I'm Helen Houston. And we've been out and about again and due to our theme of trying to engage with things that we're spotting out on tour, um, we have a very interesting, if not contentious, subject for for this this week's... (laughs) Ellen doesn't like it when I go contentious. And and this is one that a lot of people steer away from. If you're out just now, at the end of June, beginning of July, out and about around Scotland, then this is a site that you're quite likely to come across. And for our tour members who are out there, it draws the attention. It is an undeniable spectacle and people ask what is it all about and we kind of shuffle about and uh, don't address it and and we should do because in Scotland at the moment this is what we would call marching season so when I was out with a group recently walking around Edinburgh we were literally stopped in our tracks because um, you hear this long before you see it that it's a marching band so it's flutes And it's booming drums. And by booming drums, I really mean booming because they've got the enormous what's called the lambeg drum, which is one of the loudest acoustic instruments in the world. And what you'll see are sometimes it can be literally hundreds of marchers pounding down the streets, mostly men. And usually they'll either be in dark suits or if on the day that I saw them, it actually was a warm day in Scotland, it'll be white shirts. And you'll notice them by the abundance of orange in and amongst the marchers. And the gentlemen will also have bowler hats and quite often white gloves or well. You might see that accompanying them, there might be older members that are in wheelchairs or maybe even in black taxis. And more and more these days, you'll even see women marching alongside and even children. So what's it all about? I mean, this might be something that if you're if you're familiar with Northern Ireland, you know something about it, but it's it's something that you might not expect to see in Scotland. Well, these are members of what are called the Orange Order. And at their core, these groups believe in the advancement of the Protestant faith. So we thought it might be a good idea, or I thought it might be a good idea, um, to go back and have a look at the origins of the Protestant faith. And Helen is fresh off the back of a Reformation tour, so she's absolutely clued up 
are all about the Scottish Reformation. So a little bit about the Scottish Reformation, first of all, before we return to the Orange Walk, Helen. Yes, yes, Liz. Well, the, the Protestant Reformation, the Orange Walks were kind of from about the sixteen late 1600s onwards, but the Reformation was taking place in the 16th century. And that was a kind of a, a time of great kind of political and religious and intellectual, cultural upheaval. And it was going right across Europe at this time. And the key, the key name in sort of northern and central Europe was Martin Luther. John Calvin was there as well. And we still we will include Henry VIII of England as well. Uh, they were challenging papal authority and they were questioning the Catholic Church, Catholic Church ability to divine the Christian practice. Basically, the Catholic Church had kind of got above itself in all things. It was incredibly wealthy at this point, And there was a lot of very, very poor people around Europe. But the Catholic Church still had lots and lots of money. But this start of the Protestant Reformation, historians kind of take it to 1517, when Martin Luther sort of nailed his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg. And he was an Augustinian monk, but he was also a university lecturer. And the big protest was against the Pope's sale of reprieves from penance, or probably more generally called indulgences, the sale of indulgences. You could actually buy forgiveness. You could buy a fast track to heaven rather than you have to go through the normal route which went through purgatory. Yeah, I always think liken it to the fast track at the airport through security. <laughs> right? yes. If you can pay, you're, you're on the, the, the fast track. Because if you think about it, in those days, life on earth was short. I mean, you died from disease, from injury, and um, from your occupation. And so, you know, while life on earth was short, you believed in the eternal hereafter. And so you wanted to get through the period in purgatory as quickly as possible. Mm. And so if you could afford to pay to go on crusade, pilgrimage, or indeed for the indulgence, if you slipped up and had the odds in here and there, you were on that fast track through to heaven. And um, whereas the poor people had to, to slave away. And uh, so they were getting poorer and the Catholic Church was getting richer. Yeah, they had to stand in line, didn't That's they, Liz? Like the rest of us. <laughs> like yeah. the rest of us. But they were rejecting the authority of the Pope. And that was, Martin Luther did that very, very strongly. And that normally le led to uh, a charge of heresy and followed by conviction and uh, execution. That eventually came his way, but not immediately. But the yeah. thing that really that really boosted the rise of Protestantism or the success of Protestantism, Protestantism, mm -hmm. was the the rise of the or the invention of the printing press, and the you they were able to print their leaflets and get them out to a much wider audience rather than just those that were there listening to them. They could put these leaflets out right across Europe. Yeah, and of course, at the, the heart of it all was education, side by side with yeah. religion, because in, in Scotland at that time, we had the University of St Andrews, which was the third university 
in Britain at that time. Oxford and Cambridge were the first two and the Scots didn't really want to go and study down in Oxford and Cambridge. They wanted a university of their own. So they got permission from the Pope to establish the University of St Andrews in 1413. Now in those days you didn't have your psychologies and your philosophies and your politics and economics to study at university. It was quite simple. You studied the classics and you studied religion. And so people from St Andrews started to go across to Europe to study at the great universities in Europe and they would bring back these ideas of this new reformed religion um, that was against the power and authority of the Catholic Church and putting the power back into the hands of the ordinary working person. Yes, and one of the one of the main people, one of the very early sort of people who did this was a, a guy called Patrick Hamilton. And he was only age 24. That gives you an idea of the youth that was about, the youth that was grasping these ideas. He had been over in Europe and had heard um, Martin Luther and he came back with all these ideas. But of course, the university didn't like to hear what he was preaching or what he was lecturing in. And so he was put to death. He was tried and then he was burned at the stake outside the the college, St. Sylvator's College. And it's quite interesting, there's initials in cobbles on the stone marking the spot, PH. And these are ones, Liz, you'll know, you just don't stand on the initials. Yeah, it's supposed to be very bad luck. And if you look up um, on the walls of St. Sylvator's, you'll see that there's one stone where you can just about make out Patrick's Hamilton's face, this miracle that occurred as he burnt at the stake as a heretic. Actually, I've look, been looking at that for a number of years now, Liz, and I have a funny feeling it's getting more distinct. And I don't know whether somebody's up there with a wee uh, carbon <laughs> crayon going on, but it's, the face is becoming more and more distinct. Or is there a message there? We'll have to wait and see. But but he, he was burnt at the stake and, uh, at that point. And then, but happening down in England at the same time, a different different reformation was taking place. It was, although it had been bubbling under the surface since the beginning of the 1500s, it was Henry VIII who, as we know, had many wives. But to start off this sort of role of wives, he had to get a divorce from the first wife. And he asked the Pope and the Pope said no. I'm putting it very simply here, so forgive me all the people out there. And the Pope said no, and Henry basically said in 1534, well, I'm sorry, you are no longer head of, my, head of the church in my country of England. I am now head of the church of my country in England, and I grant myself a divorce. There had been quite a lot of work being done prior to that with various acts of Parliament, so that when he did dismiss the Pope, it was the final straw in a long line of sort of gradual uh, diminishing of the Pope's powers. Yep, so I like to explain it to my, my tour members as evidenced by the church today because in the, the Church of England it is the monarch who's at the head of the yep. church, the divine right of the monarch to rule as God's appointee on earth. And that was the difference between the Reformation in Scotland and England. In England, it was imposed upon the people by the king, Henry VIII, down. He told them it was happening, and if he wanted it, he got it. In Scotland, it was bubbling up from the people below. We had these students coming back to St Andrews and beginning to preach this new reformed religion. We also had strong merchant links between Scotland and particularly the East 
at the east coast ports of Scotland and Europe. And so it began to come in by that route as well. People began to talk about it. And the, this, this new reformed religion, this protest against the Catholic Church, took caught light and um, the, fa- the flames were fanned across Scotland. And so it was the people that took it. But in both cases, as you said, Helen, it was the, the printing press, the power yeah. of propaganda, you know, to be able to get people to catch on to this new religion. And of course, it didn't matter how many printing presses you had if the people couldn't read. So in both Scotland in particular, but also in England, you had a school in every parish where the people could read and write. Yes, and it was it was really these these leaflets or pamphlets coming in, you know, being imported in through all the East Coast villages, they were just really awash around around Scotland, around the central part, the east and the central part of Scotland. So much so that in fifteen twenty five the Parliament pa- passed an act, an ent heresy, in other words, about heresy, banning the importation and the reading on pain of forfeiture of all these leaflets coming in. So the, the the government were taking it very seriously. It was really taking hold. Yep, and we've got pain of forfeiture, but never mind pain of forfeiture. What about the pain of burning at the stake? Oh, yeah. Because the next charismatic preacher to come along in St Andrews was George Wishart. And uh, people were beginning to listen to this message. And so a, a, a clear punishment had to be sent out by the Catholic Church. And in St Andrews at that time, it was Cardinal David Beaton. And so when he heard of this new charismatic preacher, he ordered that George Wishart be burnt at the stake in front of his his his, um, his gorgeous St Andrews Castle, the home of the Arch- or the Cardinal in St Andrews at that time. And George Wishart knew the power that that was going to have, so he embraced it, and he actually kissed and embraced his own executioner in forgiveness, so that um, this th- th- showed the power of this new reformed religion. Yes, and it was it was he even sort of said that one of George Wishart's sort of attendants or bodyguards uh, while he was preaching around Scotland was a, a name that everybody will recognise, John Knox. And George Wishart said to John Knox in 1546, look, you just go away just now, go away because it's me that they're after. Uh, you go away and um, you, know, I will sacrifice myself almost, but you'll be there to continue fanning the flames later on. But they, But there wasn't just... John Knox. After Wishart's death, the the lairds of Fife, they were called, the Protestant lairds, the Protestant lords, sort of burst into the castle and they assassinated Cardinal Beaton for what he'd done to Wishart. And then they held the castle under siege. So that was the Protestants inside, the protesters, the Protestants were inside the castle and it was under siege to the government who were the, the Catholics, the church people outside and that went on for about a year. John Knox was also involved in the siege. Eventually, the French came. They were they were the Catholic French, and they were supporting Mary of Guise, who was outside part of the government. They were supporting her, and they they took the castle. And John Knox ended up as a galley slave for the on the French galleys, which I think he served two years on there, but then wandered round Europe, you know, just absorbing and taking up all this. Protestant preachings that was going on in in Europe, in Switzerland, John Calvin, and then he eventually came back to Scotland, 
uh, be at England. He, he preached around in, in England as well, came back to Scotland, and that's where we really begin to see the Scottish Reformation taking hold. 1559-1560, John Knox is preaching in St Andrews and Perth and St Giles in Edinburgh, all over Scotland, really almost inciting the congregations to go out and destroy all these idolatrous images because, of course, Protestants, you worshipped God and Christ only. You did not worship images. So all these beautiful statues, stained glass windows, everything just had to go. And I think that this is a period in history that most of our listeners will be familiar with. Well, we're in the middle of the 16th century. You've got Mary, Queen of Scots. Um, at this time, she was Mary, Queen of France as well. But um, husband died, forced to come back to Scotland. She was a Catholic monarch, very, very devout Catholic monarch in a strongly Protestant country. So she had John Rock and John Knox railing against her, this monstrous regiment of women, <laughs> her and her mother and all the rest of it. And so you have her pitted against her cousin, the Protestant Queen Elizabeth in England. And so you end up with Mary imprisoned for 19 years and then eventually um, sentenced to death by her own Protestant cousin. So it was a time of Protestant against Catholic, cousin against cousin, um, a time of real religious divide, not just in Scotland, we've seen in England as well, but across the whole of Europe as well, Catholic pitted against Protestant. Yeah, I always, I always think of poor Mary, Queen of Scots, having been brought up in France with all that sort of gaiety, colour, music, culture, dance, freedom, and coming back just the year after the Protestant Re Reformation, which in my mind just banned anything that was fun and bring in everything that was doer and dull. <laughs> so. So poor poor Mary had yeah. to change cultures very, very quickly, which, of course, she found very difficult. Yeah, and of course, her bad taste in men led oh. her to her exile. And her son, James, James the VI of Scotland, he was crowned James the VI of Scotland, as a child being brought up, very strict disciplinarian as a tutor, George Buchanan, being brought up and absolutely indoctrinated about the Protestant faith. So when he succeeded Elizabeth as a good Protestant king and heir to the, the, the throne of England and he went down to England, the Scots thought, this is a triumph. You know, we've got a, a Scottish king, there's a Protestant on the throne, he's away down to England. But I'm afraid when he, he left Scotland, he very much forgot about it in many ways. And when he was out of the way, the Protestant church and the nobles were left behind to form this new Scottish Protestant identity. Yes, and and you know he he really you know he again brought in this this printing, getting things out, you know, indoctrinating people through the catechism, you know, questions and answers. Here are the questions. Now you recite the answers. It was he even ad adopted some of the popular songs, the tunes of the time, the ballads of the time, and turned them into Protestant songs. So it was a real, as you say, Liz, indoctrination. The prot propaganda machine that any monarch could be proud of and, and a, of few course, a few politicians as well and a few <laughs> few politicians that's right but it it soon it soon became you know after james it became a bit of a really the notice of killing times in the in the mid 60s yeah. uh, with this religion this you know, 
Protestant against Catholic, and, and or even the different denominations of Protestantism, which you know, although they were Protestant, it was Protestantism. They they were fighting with each other, the different denominations, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people were were persecuted. They were they were you know, um, hunted down. They were gathered into into prisons. They were they were executed for their for their beliefs, and then suddenly. In the 16, 1688, James the Seventh and Second, who was, had converted to Catholicism, was asked to leave the country and hand the, the crown over to his Protestant uh, daughter Mary and her husband William of Orange. And William of Orange, the Netherlands had grown up with with Protestants of all denominations living peaceably together. So just as violently as the killing time started. They, they stopped almost immediately with the appointment of William of Orange, who said, it's okay, all Protestants, you're Protestants, you live peaceably together, I don't mind. And that was it, and that's perhaps, Liz, where the killing time stopped, and we can look at why we're still marching, the Orange Marches. Well, it was a little while before the killing time stopped and there was a lot of bitterness and, and retribution in that time. I mean, James the, the Sixth of Scotland, James and James I of England, they call him the wisest fool in Christendom. But he was he was pretty savvy. He knew that he believed in the divine right of kings to rule on earth, but he knew that the Scots weren't having any of that. So he took up where Henry VIII had left off with this divine right to rule and had been followed on by Elizabeth and, and so forth. But he left the Scots and didn't push them. However, his successor, Charles I, wasn't so savvy and he tried to impose this divine right to rule. And that's when you got the covenanters signing the national covenant, a bond with God that they would defend their right for no, no what they were against were this intercessory, the people coming in and saying prayers for their soul on their behalf. They didn't want any of that. They wanted the direct line to God themselves. And so that was when they stood up. And when William of Orange came back with Mary as as, as joint um, monarchs, he went back to this, okay, it's not worth fighting about. We've got political turmoil, we've got religious turmoil, let's sort out the political stuff and give Scots their own church. And so the, this was when he settled for them having the Church of Scotland. But in Ireland, we've got the same the, the same discussions, arguments, fights going on between Catholic and Protestant. And that is at the heart of the Orange Walks, because the difference between a lot of, of um, celebrations or commemorations is about nationalism. But the nationalism in Ulster is different because it's born out of history. It's born out of four major conflicts of, of Protestant against Catholic, but in particular, the Glorious Revolution, or the Revolution of 1688, which was all about William and Mary. Yes, because, as I said, that James James had been you know, ousted to Europe, and William and Mary, or Mary his daughter, and William her husband, came in their place. And the, not everybody was happy with that, and that gave rise to the supporters of James who wanted to him to continue, and they were called Jacobites. A lot of our listeners will know heard of the Jacobites, and that's another another episode, Liz. I think, mm -hmm. and uh, so the Jacobites under James met with the Williamites under William in Ireland, 
and had a set to. And Liz, you can tell us a wee bit about the set to that really gave rise to what we're seeing today. Yeah. Yeah, the big battle was in July 1690, where the forces of the Catholic king, James II of England, 7th of Scotland, um, his claims to the throne and the, the, the claims of the Jacobites what came to an end at what was called the Battle of the Boyne. This is a place just near to Drogheda, just outside Dublin. And there, the forces of the Catholic king came out with the forces of Protestant King William. Now, he William came from... He was the Prince of Orange in Holland. And so the colour orange is very much associated with King William. And at that point, when he defeated the Catholic forces, it was a tipping point in all of the, the wars that had gone beforehand because you got then what was called the Protestant ascendancy in Ireland. Now, this was domination by a minority Protestant population. So the Protestants were in the minority in Ireland, but with the, the help of good old King Billy, as he's known, he became the champion of the Protestant faith. So not just religious domination, but also political, economic, social domination. And that has persisted in, in Ulster. And so you can understand why in Ulster, William of Orange is revered as such a champion. But why does it spill over into Scotland. Yes, I think it's because of going back to the Jacobites that Scotland, the Protestants, they were they were actually getting quite a strong hold in central Scotland. The Protestants were, were actually just living quite peaceably in central Scotland by this time. By the 1700s, we didn't have so much fighting against the Catholics. It was more infighting in the Protestants that was going on at that point. But the, I, I'm really not quite sure why we still have so much in Scotland about this and how the, how the, the orange marches that we, we started talking about there, why they have such a stronghold here. Thousands of members. Yeah, it's because of the close ties between the Protestants of particularly the west coast of Scotland and the Protestants of Northern Ireland. And this at its core, this um, orange order, sees itself as defending the rights of Protestants, their civil and their religious liberties. Now, you may say, well, nobody's challenging their civil and religious liberties these days. You know, they have the right to, to practice their own religion. And I think that's where people see it as being antagonistic, you know, that there's no real reason these days. It's an anachronism to come out and do it. Others see it as a celebration of um, culture. It's, it's, it's very very much culture. And it comes out of um, this orange order. They can go to church on Sunday, um, they can practice their own faith, but the orange order take it a stage beyond that because they see it about mutual support, commemoration of what is their Ulster Protestant history. And so in the orange order, they're not allowed to marry a Catholic, um, they're not allowed, no Catholics are allowed to join the order. And so many Catholics quite rightly see this as being, when they're marching, it's all about triumphalism. It's all about defeating the, 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 um, the, the, the Catholics. It's very contentious because it's seen as sectarian. Yes, and I think this is, this is one of the big problems, Liz, that I'm, I'm just wondering whether it is still so strictly um, divisive as it was, because I'm thinking of the, the royals now have got a little bit of leeway as to who they can marry. You have the Orange Order got 
got a little bit of leeway now. I think that's exactly why the orange order gets stronger. They see their their reason to be being eroded by exactly that. That you know, it's no longer with the the changes to the constitution. A, a Catholic you know, can a monarch can marry a Catholic, and so they become even stronger, and their parades become even more important to them. I've often I've often thought, Liz, that when I've seen these parades, because like you, I've been caught with a group coming out of Glasgow Cathedral, for example, and trying to cross over the road to get to where the coach is. And you know, just this band after band after band, marching after marchers after marchers, you know, just stopping the road, you know, not, not letting it getting across. And all my tour members are saying, oh, what's going on? Tell us what's going on. And my actual inclination, although I've not done it, Liz, and I don't think I will do it, is to just stop one of the marchers and say, now, I'm being asked, what is this all about? Can you explain it to me, please? Uh, well, they would see it as as um, their right to march, their right to march on the Queen's Highway and the right to celebrate their culture. So what they're doing is that each of these marches that you see is made up of bands that come from what's called an Orange Lodge. So these Orange Lodge celebrate the, the Protestant culture and then they go out in the marching season. They've got these colourful uniforms. The bands have got these colourful uniforms. They've got tassels and braids and buttons all over them. And the bands are actually hired. So they come in to march with a lodge. Um, and when you hear them coming, um, it's absolutely, you know, regardless of what you're feeling is about the undertones of it, the bands, the music, the power of it that goes with it. And it just seems to me, particularly when you see children, you'll see children in the band, you know, playing the drums or whatever, marching along with it, that it just seems to be using music for the wrong reason. You know, I can understand that they want to celebrate their culture, but at the base of it is sectarianism. So you're quite right, Helen, that they are trying to move with the times, but I do kind of question what they're doing. They've rebranded the 12th of July, which is the big celebration, the Battle of the Boyne. They've rebranded it Orange Fest. Now, these orange walks go on all over the world, wherever there's um, particularly Ulster um, immigrants in, in the, the parts of the of the Commonwealth like Togo and Canada and Ghana and so they've included them in it and tried to make it inclusive and they've gone on a, a charm fest they've even had a superhero mascot called Diamond Dan until you realize that Diamond is the battle of diamonds so it's not really a cuddly character it's going back to this bitter hatred between yes. Protestant and, and Catholic and um, so they are there to express culture and faith and we've got that going on all over the world in religious festivals and Easter parades in Spain everywhere but um, they are a dying breed, if you like. And so they're trying to reach out to a new generation to get them to perpetuate this um, celebration of their political Protestant culture. And I think that's a good thing, Liz, because I think as we've we've learned through other um, avenues in the past year or two, that really you can't um, suppress history. You've got to explain it. Yes. And part, part of the reason for doing this particular podcast is to try to give our listeners a little idea of if they do see um, an orange walk anywhere in Scotland or, or anywhere, that they have an understanding and idea of you know, why it is and how it came about and what is what are they trying to do. I think, I think that is a, a really good thing. Don't suppress history, don't suppress culture, but explain it. 
I think that's a very good point, Helen. That's exactly what we're we're trying to do here. And whether they survive in the future, I mean, the the the, the political opinion, sorry, not the political, because they are. I mean, that is a very strong point as well. That they are very political, particularly in Northern Ireland, um, in the parties that they support um, there. But you're just looking at the religious. We're we're taking it from the religious perspective today. They are on a shaky nail, a shugany nail, as we'd say in Scotland, because not just is public opinion turning against them, but just the inconvenience that they cause. You know, closing roads down, the the, the disruption, the incitement to hate and violence. You know, that's of a bygone day. People are turning against them, and even with the best PR in the world, you know, they're going to have to change. They're going to have to capitalise. On this spectacle uh, and celebrate it if they're going to survive in the future. Yes, and this is why I think you know, rebranding it Orange Fest is a way towards that. It softens it. It softens it, but also allows the explanation. And I know that the the Grand Orange Lodge of Scotland are working very closely with the with the police to to you know, remove the spectators who might be chanting sectarian chants in the. You know, along the streets, just to to stop that. We don't want that. We want people to embrace this as part of culture. Yeah, celebrate the culture and remove the sectarianism. But now you know, if you're walking along and you hear this huge drum beating, and you know, as they go under bridges, I, I was watching them in the grass market because it was the grass market lodge that, that this um, this walk had, had originated from. And as they went under the bridge, this drum he was beating it fit to burst it first fit to burst the skin and what a noise what a spectacle so embrace the spectacle question the sectarianism i think that's the message from today Uh, and the culture that's right absolutely embrace it all and understand the culture and why so liz do we have any words for today i think we've had more than a few words today helen i did have one but i can't remember what it was well, I'll start off with one. Right. Pinching it from something you said today, you talked about sugarly. Uh-huh. You know, their their coats on a sugarly peg, and a sugarly just means shaky. Uh-huh. And if your coats on a sugarly peg, it's going to fall. The peg's going to come out, and it's going to fall. So what you're there for could disappear. You're on borrowed time. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> Well, I think we're on borrowed time. I'll think of a, a word for the next time. Right, so me too. look out for spectacles as we're out and about. Okay, bye for now, Helen. Bye for now. Thank you, Liz. Bye. And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye.